Um, we love the Shaws, and we're so excited uh, that they're here. And I would encourage you to open your hearts and ears to what he would have to say this morning. I'm going I'm I'm to pray for him because I just saw his notes. What is going on here? Can anyone see this? Is this for real? <laughs> Man, let's just lay hands on these notes. We just pray, Lord, that whatever equation this is, <laughs> that it would equal you speaking to us through Tom, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Travis. I think uh, one, of the, one of the main things, if not the, the biggest thing, that I felt God speaking to me about the last year has been the topic or the issue of hope. Hope. And if you're a Christian here today or even vaguely familiar with Christianity, you'll probably know the answer to the question of, in life, where should we put our hope? Or let me be more specific, in who should we put our hope? What's his name? Jesus. Yeah, we, we know that. We're aware of that, Tom. Thanks. But I think the reality is, and this is something that I, I'd never seen in my life before up until a few months ago, although I knew that theory, when I actually looked in an average week at my heart, at where functionally I was putting my hope, and hope could be described as, for example, a, a feeling of expectation and desire for certain something to happen. Where I actually looked at my heart as to where I was functionally putting my hope, my expectations, the honest truth was it was, a, it was a million miles away from Jesus. It was genuinely been very shocking. And I'm still very much in the process right now of even beginning to see that. Just a couple of illustrations. <laughs> when, I, when I first started thinking about this, I'd, I'd ordered a wax jacket. Now in England, wax jackets are a big deal. Do you even know what a wax jacket is? It sounds bizarre. I'll show you one. They're beautiful things, very expensive. And I'd ordered a wax jacket off Amazon and I had a full 24 hours to wait. And, and during those 24 hours, although in theory, Jesus really was the one that my hope was put upon functionally. If you could have looked inside my soul and my heart, the thing that actually really my hope was set upon, <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds, was the arrival of that wax jacket. The thing that really was dominating my emotions and my soul and my hope was that when that hopefully it will come in the morning, because then I can wear it to that meeting, in the you know, evening meeting. It can be in the most ridiculous... Is that just me, or does anyone here vaguely identify with the fact that you, you say this, this huge thing of where our hope is, but then the, the crazy thing is often that our, our hearts are such fickle things. So, you know, it could be... You could put your hope in, in things that are good things, like, I don't know, a new week beginning. Last week was an absolute shocker. So I'm putting up my hope 
in the next week. That's really, actually, if you could look inside my soul, where genuinely my hope really is found. This time of year, a massive one is putting my hope in my vacation. Really, that's actually functionally where my real hope is found in just leaving Vesalia, getting in a car, and going somewhere else. It could be a, a football team that you support. You get the idea. It goes on and on. I'll be honest with you. Now I'm the ripe old age of 37. I can even find myself putting my hope in staying vaguely slim. My hope can be actually in how I look. And this is something that I think is, is kind of terrifying, but also the Bible is so wonderfully kind. Uh, turn with me if you've got a Bible to the book of Hebrews and chapter 7, because in a chapter which many of us find a bit strange, it's dominated by this guy Melchizedek. Anyone here heard of Melchizedek? Some of us, yeah. <laughs> I won't go into him today. But you find this absolute astonishing crescendo to what at first seems like a slightly confusing chapter, this central idea of where you're putting your hope. It says this in verse 18 and 19. He's, listen, he is trying to get them to stop putting their hope in anything other than Jesus. And the first verse we're going to read is him, it's like he's weaning them off. He says, I don't want you doing that. And what I want you now to start doing is to start doing positively this in terms of where you put your hope. Verse 18, he says, on the one hand, a former commandment or a former place you put your hope is set aside. Say set aside. It is set aside. It's not just an additional thing. It's set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, look at this, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Have you heard the prophetic theme of this morning? Draw near, draw near, draw near. Don't wait, draw near. It's the same thing. Through this better hope. And, and the thing is, God's so kind. He, he doesn't say, oh, Tom, you idiot for putting your hope in that wax jacket or whatever it might be. You fool here for putting your hope in those friendships or whatever it might be. He just kindly says, look, I know that you as humans are hardwired to hope. You are. We're all designed to hope. He just says, but I want to show you this morning is a better hope. It's not that those things are evil or wrong. The vast majority of the places we put our hope are not evil or wrong. They're just deeply inferior to Jesus. I love that. A better hope. There's a gentleness to what we're looking at today. It's not a harsh thing. It's, it's a wooing. It's a better hope. I love that phrase. It's a better hope. And there's a couple of things that I just want to talk about this better hope that are actually timeless, even though this was written 2,000 years ago. The thing about Jesus in comparison with any other hope and listen, if you're a non-Christian here today, I want to particularly address you today. I was an atheist for the first 20 years of my life. And I put my hope in so many other places. The two things about Jesus that we're going to look at just briefly this morning that mean he is such a better hope is that he is permanent in a world that changes all the time. 
And secondarily, he is perfect in a world where every other place you put your hope fails and falters. He's permanent and he is perfect. He really is. And you might not believe me, particularly if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you might think I'm bonkers. Let me show you how the writer to the Hebrews argues this. First of all, he says to these guys, listen, he's permanent in contrast to everywhere else you put your hope. Read with me verse 23. You see, the former priests, this is the place they put their hope. Historically, they'd grown up as part of Israel. Israel was dominated by the, the priesthood system. And actually, it was a system of hope. The basic idea was when you mucked up and you sinned, it wasn't over. You made your way to the temple and you went to the priests. And you went to the priest with your animal to demonstrate how serious you were. And there was hope. That's how they'd historically lived their life. That's what priesthood equals hope. Where do I put my hope, Tom? I put it in the priesthood. Because it's about rescue. It's about when I get things wrong, I can still make a way to God. But now he's trying to show them as good as that was, it's not permanent. Listen, you're not probably struggling today with, oh, I go to the priesthood too much. That's probably not your challenge today. But I promise you there'll be a replacement. There'll be something that is your equivalent. The place even now you're tempted to put your hope. I promise you. So the former priests fill in there whatever place it is that you go to. And we'll look at a couple of examples in a moment. The former place that you put your hope were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, say it with me, permanently because he continues forever. Now listen, what he's saying is stunning. I love this. What he's trying to say is, look, the priesthood thing was a gift of God. It was a wonderful thing for a world that would turn its back on God. God gave this institution of humble men, normal men, but humble men, who were there to make a way between a hopeless world and a God of hope. So for them, this was a precious thing, them talking about this priesthood thing. But what he's saying to them is, is the problem is, as good as it was, there was a little bit of a problem with the whole priesthood thing. They had this unfortunate habit of dying. You just got comfortable with a priest, and you go to Priest Frank every week, or Priest Fred, or whatever, and you get close to this guy, and he knows all of those intimate things that you struggled with, because you're confessing them to him, and you get close to him, and your hope's in him, and I love this guy, and he's so kind, and he doesn't judge me, and then he dies. And what he's trying to say is, don't you understand, for your, your, the previous place you, you went for hope, it changes it fails. It, it, it isn't permanent. Now, what you've got to understand, the context here of the book of Hebrews really brings this alive. Because the reality is, these guys had been Jews. They'd become Jewish, then Christians. Now listen, for them to become a Christian did not mean that they go to Radiant Church once every two weeks. For them it meant deep persecution. The whole book is littered with references to the fact that because you are now a Christian, it means your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your workmates, who are all Jewish, have turned their back on you. They hate this Christianity thing. They have no praise. or They're not behind this at all. For them to be a Christian meant that they're probably going to die. Now think about that. 
Why is that relevant? They're tempted, therefore, to go back to the old way. Can I come back? That's where I found my hope. That's where my friends were. I don't want to lose that. All I have now is this invisible God called Jesus. Whereas this old way was filled with physical things that my eyes could see, my hands could touch, my friends and I were built around. I've come on this Jesus way and there's nothing. They hate me. They're going to kill me. Can you imagine that? Seriously. Your parents, your, your, your wife, your husband, your friends, your mates. I mean, when I became a Christian, they were mildly, passively aggressive. To these guys, they're like, we will kill you. I mean, it's, it's serious. Now, this is huge. Why am I saying this? Because what I, we have to understand, for them, finding, finding something that's permanent when everything has changed is everything to them. It's not, a, it's not a small thing. Him saying, saying the P word, the permanent word, for a people who are feeling stripped down, as vulnerable as you can get, everything's gone out the window. They feel like they're failures. Their life was flying high in the Jewish system, and now they're just like these idiots despised by the community, and they're feeling like everything's gone wrong, and all I've got is this invisible Jesus. He's saying, I want to talk to you about the only permanent hope, the real permanent hope. Darling, my daughter's. Daisy and Poppy. Hey, guys. I want you to know. Sorry, Jesus. Help me. Focus. This is so huge. I want you to know about a permanent hope. A permanent hope. I hate change. Anyone here hates change? One of you. I hate change. I hate to even change it around at the supermarket. I get angry and confused and I'm wondering. Where's the? I hate it. And what I do, therefore, is I put my hope in things not changing. I don't want anything to change. My kids, right on cue, are just stunning. I've got Daisy, Lily, and Poppy, eight, seven, and three. And they are just at that perfect age where they actually like me. They want to spend time with me. They want to cuddle me. It's just heaven. But you know what I do then? Is I go the next step of saying, secretly, Lord, let this never change. Let this be permanent. Some of you are like that. Some of you got friends at Radiant, that you love. But deep down, your actual hope is in that never changing. Don't you get married. <sighs> On the surface, you'd be like, yay, ready going out with someone. <laughs> Some of you have got a small group that finally you actually like. You small groups here? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Suddenly you've got a work job. It actually is just. And what happens is we put our hope in those things not changing. And the reality is everything changes. It does. And listen, if you have put your hope in something not changing, listen to me, draw close. It is only a heartbeat between hope in the wrong place and hurt. And this room is filled with hurting people. It is. Because we all do it. I had a, a horrendous experience two years ago where in the space of 24 hours, God was teaching me this. I was at a meeting. Uh, we're part of a, this church is part of a global family of 1,000 churches across the world led by historically one man and I was very close to him, and I led a big event on his behalf. And in one day, I went to a meeting with all the new guys who were leading, and what was 
they said was now actually Terry's handing it over, we're in charge and thank you for 10 years Tom of leading this huge event with students in 20s in the UK but actually we don't need you anymore. And they weren't doing anything wrong, they were just, and for me I just imploded. I got on that train and I just wept. I then got home and my, one of the elders at church said, Tom, I've got to tell you, we've been working on a building, an $8 million building project for three years. We're this close to it finalizing and the council have just rung up to say they're going to pull the plug. In 24 hours, two of the biggest things I had put my hope in not changing were taken away from me. And it was so agonizing. And I also want to humbly say, I know for some of you here, perhaps slightly more senior, you have had things 10,000 times more painful happen in your life. And I thank you for your humility in even receiving something from someone like me who's still very, very unscarred, really, in this life. But even those things where I put my hope, of, that's going to be the thing that stays still. And it hurt like hell, if I can say that. But I tell you what, it was the kindest thing that God has ever done. Because what it does is, when we're putting our hope of things staying permanent there, and it goes like that, what happens is when everything starts to happen like that, suddenly there's only one thing or only one person who remains who will never let us down, who will never change, who will never in any way be insufficient or fragile or disappointed. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, and that's why he says here, he says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him, for you, for me. That's a stunning thing. He's saying, I want you to just more and more taste the reality, the pain, but the truth that everything will change. Your kids will grow up. Your friends will move away. Your spouse will not be great sometimes. Your kids won't be how you want them to be. Your job won't always be good if it's good. You name it. Your body will fail you. Your memory will go. Your emotions, which might be strong, will start to go up and down. And You name it. God will rock and shake everything. He will. Because he wants only one person to be left supremely visible and central. The only one who is unshakable. The permanent Jesus Christ. Who is more real than the person sitting next to you. Although you can't see him with your eyes. This is Jesus. You see, our whole Christian faith is based on a permanent, unchanging event that has happened at Calvary. It's about the stunning truth of Jesus Christ who was a man and God who hung on a, on a tree and gave his life, absorbing the full, righteous, appropriate wrath of God for Tom Shaw and for you. So that it never needs to happen again, hallelujah. So that when we fear what will happen when we die, we go, do you know what? I know one thing that's not happening is there's going to be no wrath for me if you're a Christian here today. Because I'm in Christ. I've already experienced it. I was with him when he experienced it at that cross. That's the unshakable place we start, Calvary. But actually what he's talking about here is not so much a past ability of Jesus to save. He's actually talking about a present continuous. He says, I have done it through the cross, past tense, but I'm also ongoingly doing it. Do you know that I believe totally that if you are truly saved, nothing can change that? I do believe that. That's big S salvation, capital S, hallelujah. 
gripped by God. But I do believe he ongoingly saves us, small s. He needs to keep rescuing me from myself and from the world and from the flesh and from the devil. He does it, and he's so committed to it. He says, I do it to the uttermost. I don't just do it as a part-time job. I live to make intercession for Radiant Church. I mean, if you ever watch like the X Factor or American Idol, and they interview the people who are like getting ready for their audition, and like, how much does this mean to you, Betty? And she's like, oh, it's everything to me. I live for music. This phrasing here, he lives to make intercession, it's language of absolute, 100% commitment. It's like this is what Jesus is, his primary thing he loves to do, aside from adoring the Father, I love, I adore, I never stop interceding for you. What he's saying is, he wants us to increasingly learn to wean ourselves off by the power of the Holy Spirit, putting our hope in anyone or anything else as unchanging, and increasingly living our lives. Yes, with our eyes we can't see it, but it's more real than the person sitting next to you. This wonderful truth of Jesus Christ ascended on high, interceding relentlessly for you and for me to the Father. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to know that he will never stop doing that. I, me and Josie, um, I don't know if any of you parents ever do this, we found ourselves quite often in the morning before the kids wake up. If we wake up, we'll uh, often find that the first thing we have to talk about is actually what happened the night before, often with the girls. And we're like, oh, did you? Did you know last night, Poppy? She said, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, or whatever. You just sort of, and as parents, you say these stupid, ridiculously like adoring things over your kids, which really aren't very impressive, but to you they are. Now what sometimes happens is, me and Josie will be doing this, and occasionally, a rare, you know, on a rare moment, we'll actually flow into a bit of prayer for them. It's not very impressive at six in the morning, believe me, but it's, it's oh Lord, thank you, da And what happens is, I don't know how or why, but so often, just as that moment is starting to happen, there's a little creak of the door, and in emerges Poppy Shaw with a big white blonde afro. Three-year-old girl, in she comes. And we'll go, darling, we were just talking about you. But we were just praying for you, sausage. Come on. Come in. Come in, Poppet. In you come. And she's like, oh, snuggles into bed. And what I'm saying is, listen. God, the Father and Jesus, never stopped talking about you. That's why he says, draw near to the door. Draw near to the bedroom. Draw near to that place where God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, are truly delighting in you, interceding for you, discussing the work of salvation in your life. That's the permanent thing. That's the one thing that will never change. And God is not committed to your pleasure in other things. He's not committed to that. He's not committed to you having a perfect life. He is profoundly committed to you discovering that picture of Jesus and the Father, absolutely intoxicated in their discussions, their love, their prayers, their adorations of you, so that you're constantly drawing near. He says, draw near to the door. Don't be miles off from the house. I love it when I realize my kids were just on the other side of the door, just about to creep in. And listen, for some of you today, for some of you here, you you have been carrying pain and hurt. And he's saying to you, I want you today I want you to realize your life, your life. That, that's when he says, I work all things together for the good. 
He doesn't say, I work them together for you to just feel great in other areas. He's saying, I will remove and expose all those places that you put your hope of staying permanent so that ultimately the one place of knowing this Jesus who says, I just constantly think about you. I can't wait for your life on this earth to be over. It's good that you're here. It's fruitful labor, Paul says. It's good that you're here. But I can't wait for your heart to stop and your lungs to stop, and then you'll be with me. Isn't that amazing? He's so excited about you flying into eternity with him. He's so excited about that. He wants you to draw near to the room. And it's instant. You don't have to wait. We're going to hopefully come back in a moment and just come before him. And this is, listen, if you're here and you're a brand new Christian, or you're not even a Christian, hallelujah. This is for you. And even for you, listen, many of you here may be in that place and you're thinking, I have put my hope in all these things. And I'm suddenly realizing he's the only permanent one. But you know what? It gets even better. And with this, I'll finish. It's not just that he's the only one who's permanent. He's the only hope who is perfect. It's like the writer, he's made a stunning point. Left hook, boom. But now he comes in with a right hook. Look with me. He says here, verse uh, 26, the next verse. He says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who's permanent. Yeah, we got that. But listen, what else is he? He's not just permanent. He's perfect. Look, this is language of, this is like one of those fireworks verses, you know, like, it's incredible. That he's a, we have such a high priest who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Hallelujah. I thought Americans were expressive. You can do better than that. Hallelujah. There you go. He is exalted above the heavens. This is massive. It's one thing that he's permanent when everything else changes. He is also perfect. That's why it says at the end of the bit, he says about appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Listen, you were designed to put your hope not just in things not changing, but in also things being perfect. That's what you want. These guys had experienced the hard way. I used to put my hope in this priesthood thing. I told the priest about this Jesus, the Messiah, he's come, and he didn't celebrate with me. He actually effectively pushed me out of the temple. He's excluded me. My whole, he, they would have realized that the place they went to put their hope of perfection, the priesthood, really, really didn't deliver. And do you know what? Me and you, we put our hope of expectation of perfection in so many other places. One of the biggest is in yourself. So many of us secretly are perfectionists who, who deep down say, we hope in Jesus. And we say things like, you know, no one's perfect. But actually, deep down, we hate our imperfections. We loathe them. I hate the fact that I'm not perfect. I hate it. And you might not think, oh, well, I'm not in that category. Listen, are you someone who finds it hard to rest? Are you someone who doesn't just work hard, but even when you're on holiday, you're sometimes dreaming about work? Are you someone who, who there's always another just thing to do? If I was to ask your best friend about you, would that be how they describe you? If you're even slightly, if you're hard on yourself, 
If that thing that wasn't quite right, you beat yourself up, you're probably a bit like me. And what that's saying is, you put your hope not in Jesus. You put your hope in yourself being perfect. We put our, our hope in ourselves being perfect. Or sometimes we put it in, I don't know, things like even our parents. We can expect our parents to have this perfect perspective on our life and just be perfectly able to understand what it's like to have kids and da la la Or we can have pressure on our parents to be perfect or our friends to be perfect or our work to be perfect, your body to be perfect, your emotions to be perfect. The list goes on. For me, another thing is just solving things and working things out. I get confused. I'm surprised when I have loose ends. <laughs> yeah, you're surprised when things don't work out. Why didn't that work? I'm so surprised. That's a warning bell <laughs> that you are like expecting perfection and things to work in this world. That's, it's a huge <laughs> warning bell saying, whip, 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 stop. We so put our hope in things being perfect in other things. And do you know what the reality is? Everything, everything apart from Christ is imperfect. Everything. Everything. And, and rather than that being a depressing thing, do you know, the more that that sinks into your soul, the more it's glorious. It's bizarre. It's the most wonderfully releasing truth in the world. I, a few weeks ago, a good friend of mine came up to me after a meeting. I'd preached my heart out. And he came up to me and said, Hi, Tom. I just wanted to be honest with you and just say, um, for the last 12 months, I've profoundly doubted your ability to lead this church. So, <laughs> totally uh, had no confidence. <laughs> and he went on and I thought, okay. He's obviously saying, but, I was waiting for the, but, now I've heard you preach today, or it never came. He's just vomited on me, and then off he went. <laughs> it was strange. And at first, I was a bit offended, obviously. <laughs> I was like, thanks, buddy. But you know what? This, this revelation just came to me. I thought, wait a minute. I'm amazed it's taken him seven years to work out that I don't have a Scooby-Doo clue what I'm doing. My pride was like, how dare you? doubt my ability to perfectly steer this church through the choppy seas of life. And I thought, and God was like, Tom, he's bang on. <laughs> he's nailed it. Clumsily, but he's nailed it. But the more I thought about it, the more like, hallelujah. Yes, I was a Wally. I am a Wally. I will always be a Wally. I am not impressive. I, I am not strategic. I lose my car keys all the time. I get my kids' names mixed up. I, I, I can't remember most things. Why would I be surprised? Why would I ever think that I have any hope of any realm of perfection in me whatsoever? Because there is only one who's perfect. And what's his name? Jesus. Hallelujah. And look at this verse here. It says he is the one. He's the one. A high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And what he's trying to do is to say, look, look up at this permanent one. Realize, not just that he's permanent, but he's also 
absolutely stunningly perfect. And what he does is so wonderful here. In verse 27, it's like a gear crunch of a verse. The next one is deliberately contrasting this fireworks verse of verse 26. Jesus, perfect. With verse 27, he says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Do you see? There's this stunning contrast. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to wean them off. For them, it was the priesthood. For us, it's ourselves, or it's our loved ones, or it's our kids growing up. For some of you, that's massive. Your hope is in your kids being stunning. I talked to a guy yesterday, lovely guy. He went on about one of his kids for like 15 minutes about this, this scholarship, and this, and he's good looking. And I thought, Mate, brilliant, but don't put your hope there. Don't do that. Some of you can, are killing your marriage. Some of you are single, and the reason you're single is because you're putting this totally unrealistic expectation of perfection on your future husband or wife. And so you're just, oh, no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. There's only one. There's only one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what it does is it frees you to then love your very imperfect spouse and to love your broken children and to love this church and to love a world rather than say, I've got to find perfection in there because you will kill yourself if you do that. Some of you are doing that with your work. As a nation, the, there's, a, there's amazing things about America, but also the drivenness and the, 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 ah, the work thing. <laughs> Just God would say, let, let only me carry that weight. And what he's trying to do, he's saying, look, look at the contrast here but between verse 27, these priests who had to, to he's almost, listen, look, look what he's doing. He says, do you remember those high priests, the ones that you're trying to put your hope of perfection in? Look what they had to do. He reminds them. They had to, once they'd heard about your sin, they had to go, thanks for that. I'll sort that out. But <clears throat> first of all, I've had a really awful night. I shouted at my wife. And I uh, was really, you know, grumpy with my kids. So I've just got to sort myself out. Sorry about that. Let me just, you know, off my own sacrifice. Sorry about this. Yeah, I've just got to deal with my own sin first. What's he doing? He is deliberately showing their stunning imperfection. He wants them to know these priests were fine for an age, but they were weak, sinful men who were a million miles away from perfect. Listen, he wants them to be disillusioned with those priests. And listen, he wants you to be disillusioned with anyone or anything else that you could ever secretly hope to be perfect. Do you know the problem in the Christian life is not that we are not positive enough? It's not. It's that we are too positive about the wrong things. I'll say that again because it's good. It is not that you are not positive enough if you feel like, oh, this Christian life's not working. It is that you are being secretly too positive. You're putting your hope of perfection in whatever it might be. You're too positive about those things. And so when they invariably hope, when they invariably fail, and your hope in those things is exposed is ultimately in a fragile thing, actually what it shows is that we need to be disillusioned like he's, he wants them disillusioned with the priests. He wants us disillusioned so that we love things, we don't worship things. 
He doesn't want you to be illusioned with your ability to plan and to avoid things failing. They're going to fail. He doesn't want you illusioned with your ability to control things or make things work or to be liked. He wants you to be very disillusioned with your ability to do any of those things so that your actual true hope of perfection is only found in Jesus. Verse 26 is the fireworks perfection verse. This holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. For some of you, it's about your friends, it's about your work, it's about your role in church. I want that to be the place. And so you're so vulnerable to hurt. Because when someone slightly overlooks you or or doesn't quite act in the way you really hope, you're devastated. And what it is, is is actually, if you put your hope of perfection on anyone or anything, anything other than Jesus, if you put it anywhere else, you will kill that thing. Only Jesus can carry the weight. He's the cornerstone. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (gasps) He is the only one. And I see person after person And I see it in my own life. Killing things. I love the church in Canterbury where I'm from. I love it. But I so quickly put my hope of expectation on the church. And this is the big one, and I'll finish with this. I love this church, even though I've only been a bit. But this church isn't perfect. It really isn't. And we preach a big gospel, and we believe for victory and for amazing things and for healing and for God to move in power and for millions of pounds to be raised and for churches to be planted and the nations to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ because of this church and God here. That's what we believe. Amen? We do. But this church is actually a jar of clay. (laughs) It's not even a vase of clay. It's a jar. (laughs) And this is huge for many of us. I had a letter a few months ago from an older chap in our church who had been an elder of another church. And he joined our church, and for seven years, he was the thorn in my side, privately. The surface of it, he was the big, <laughs> everyone. He was the holy man. Secretly, he, he was negative about everything, everything. And eventually, him and his wife, a few months ago, wrote me yet another very dramatic, intense letter and left. And there wasn't even anything left to mention. He'd already criticized everything. And at first I felt, again, very hurt about it. But you know what? I suddenly realized, I thought, how do I even respond to this? And I suddenly realized, do you know what? In many ways, he's right. We don't pray enough. We don't tell enough people about Jesus. We probably don't have enough deep community. We probably don't do communion right. We probably do have the music too loud at times. We probably do choose the wrong song sometimes. We probably do have fickle arguments over it. And the more I thought, thought, do you know what? He's, He's wanting, he's getting the treasure confused with the jar of clay. The treasure is Jesus Christ and the gospel. And what he is wanting, he's putting a weight or a hope of expectation on the church that it will never be able to bear. You read the New Testament. Give me one church that isn't absolutely mucked up. There isn't one. There isn't one. Now that isn't to say we just, oh, we're sloppy about things and we don't care. My, well, I'm giving my life for the church, the local church. It's the hope of the world. I'm giving my life for it, but it is a jar of clay. 
It is a jar of clay and Jesus is the treasure. And I want to free you today, some of you, many of you, from really starting just, I feel for some of you as I prayed about this, some of you, it's just subtle. You're just starting to slip. This is the beginnings of, I'm, I'm a bit hurt actually. A little bit hurt that this person ignored me. I'm a little bit hurt about that, the way they've done that. They're not valuing this ministry. A little bit hurt. And I feel God would just say, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't do that. This church isn't perfect. And when he returns or we go to glory, it will still be imperfect. But it's okay. Because that's actually his plan. Is that through broken, weak people, of course he's making his bride beautiful. Of course. But at the same time, we say, Lord, my hope, my hope. And what this does is, do you know what? It means that you are free in your life to fail. And to love people and things rather than to need them in the same way. It's funny that he says here that Jesus is the one who's exalted. And we phrase, use phrases, don't like we say, that person, they let me down. I had high hopes for that thing. And isn't it interesting how he finishes with that Jesus is the one who's exalted? He's the only one. And the quicker we learn this in our life, the quicker we'll go, do you know what? I have learned, I've learned through agony of how to abound when I've got Jesus and all these things. And I've, I've, I'm learning slowly to, be, to know how to be brought low when everything's gone and I'm in depression, or I'm struggling with loneliness, or I'm struggling with that sin, or I'm struggling to love anyone. It's in those moments, those moments where you feel like you're failing, do you know what? You're often graduating. You're actually in the promotion track when he's taking everything away. So it's you and him. Should we stand to our feet? I'd love to pray for us. We are almost out of time, so I'm just going to pray for all of us together. I would love it if you feel you've been in any way today, just <sighs> the Spirit's just revealed maybe a little bit of where you've put your hope. Maybe in certain things being perfect. Maybe yourself, that perfectionist thing, or people around you, your role or in things just being permanent. If you feel, do you know, Tom, actually the Spirit has just, he has nudged that, and it's painful, but it's very beautiful. I'd love you to join me in just holding out your hands. You don't have to do this. I don't want this to be a religious thing. If you feel, I want to just do something in these closing minutes, do you know, God saves the best wine till last. This isn't a ritual. Don't think about the next thing. Right now, deeply draw near. Draw near to the, bar, to the bedroom. Even now, the Spirit just wants to reveal a fresh healing where there's hurt. <sighs> oh, come, wonderful Messiah. A Messiah means anointed. Anointed. And oil is synonymous with deep healing. Some of your hearts are a little dry and cracked because you've been putting your hope in other things. And right now, it's just like there's a glimmer afresh of that wonderful Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you are all we need. 
Spirit of God, we love you. We adore you. I want to pray, first of all, for those here who don't know you at all, who would say, I'm a non-Christian. I pray right now that you will just, as our hands are held out, you will today, make this the day, for the first time, where they put that step, that weight on you, on the work of the cross. If that's you today, and you say, I know I want to become a Christian, we would love to talk to you before you leave. Please come and talk to us. But for many of us here today, just in this last moment, I pray, Lord, just if there's specific things that you've put your hope in, just right now, whisper it to him. Just whisper it to him and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. And quickly now, Spirit of God, Spirit of joy, clothe your children before we leave this room. Clothe your children. Clothe your children. <laughs> to say, you're all I need. And you be the glory. When my health fails me, you're all I need. To you be the glory. When my bank balance takes a nosedive, you are all I need. To you be the glory. When my spouse becomes like a different person and it's difficult and hard, to you be the glory. You are all I need. Lord, even now, whatever it is, that number one thing, just we say, Lord, whatever it might be that we feel we need and we don't have, we just say, Lord, to you be the glory. You are all I need.